Matt Craning has always been interested in understanding powerful systems that unified many ideas and then figuring out a way to have those systems grounded in the real world in ways that would actually deliver value for people. As the CTO and co-founder of Expanse, that's exactly what he's doing today. Expanse is helping to solve huge security and operations problem and build a system of record to track all of your IT across the internet. If it sounds complicated, that's because it is, but it's also important work. And Matt was happy to share what all of it means on this episode of IT Visionaries. Enjoy the conversation. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at mission.org. And on the other line, Matt, what's going on? Hello. Thanks so much. Very excited to be here. Yeah, we are excited to have you. So we are excited to talk to you today about all the things that are going on at Expanse. We're going to talk about, is the internet broken? What's going on with the internet? And uh, much more from your career. So first, how did you get into technology in the first place? Sure. Uh, So I think I've always been interested in kind of, you know, I'd say, I guess it's called STEM now since a very early age. So um, I was always interested in math since really age two um, and beyond. My mom has stories about kind of, you know, explaining, trying to explain infinity to me as a three-year-old. And I was always very interested in those structures, but I think I really started to fall in love with engineering in fourth grade. And uh, I remember the exact moment I had an absolutely amazing elementary school math and science teacher, Fred Sullivan, and we do uh, labs of electricity. And I still remember the moment of we'd hook up batteries in series, the light bulbs would get brighter all of a sudden. And then uh, my, my instinct immediately was, I wonder if it always does that. And within five minutes, I'd actually hooked up 20 batteries in series and lit up the entire classroom very brightly and burned out the light bulb in probably a fraction of a second. And that's when I really started to fall in love with engineering because all of a sudden, all of these ideas that I knew in these very cool constructs could actually be translated into real world things. And uh, they can be made really big. And for, you know, a nine-year-old, that was absolute catnip. And I think kind of ever since I've explored a number of areas, but it was always how to translate these very cool, powerful abstract ideas into something that is actually concrete. And uh, it began by me burning out light bulbs and quite a lot of them in fourth grade. Uh, did you have some uh, some crazy uh, <laughs> crazy <laughs> electrical issues down the road? I feel like your house's resale value might have struggled. Um, I, I think in general, uh, my parents were very good to get me toys so that I wasn't you know directly sticking things into outlets and experimenting with that. But uh, you know, lots of Legos, lots of Connects, kind of the standard physical side toys, but it was also really encouraged in our house to one, uh, kind of, you know, initially very much explore what you could do. And then kind of increasingly the scale complexity and fun, uh, of the projects expanded. So I remember building some of my first computers with my dad, but then also 
being able to really follow the connections between a lot of different disciplines was really what got me hooked was that there was both a lot of very cool things you could do in the real world, but also a lot of abstract similarities between all the different fields. And that kind of continued with me through my formal university education of really wanting to understand both powerful systems that unified a lot of ideas, but then also having them be grounded in very concrete things that would actually deliver value for people. It's kind of a very fun mix. And I think as I've grown in my career, I've definitely biased myself much more towards the practical side, but it's fun to actually have both in mind and see what you can do because that's where really fun, unexpected new things come from is interplay between previously seemingly disconnected application areas and ideas. Yeah. And so speaking of, of things that, that might have been uh, unplanned or, or uh, something you, you didn't know was going to happen. So you founded a company a number of years ago. I'm curious, you know, take us back to the early days of Expanse, which may or may not have had a different name uh, back then. What was kind of the origin of why you wanted to build this company? Sure. So uh, Expanse, uh, at the time it was founded, uh, it was known as Cadium. We're now obviously a venture-backed startup, you know, Series C, over 150 people. But when we initially founded Cadium, it was actually um, a small group of people that I met. Uh, all of us were the co-founders. We met when we were all at DARPA working on a program related to uh, the war in Afghanistan. And we actually founded Cadium very much to actually bid on military contracts. So we designed Cadium at first to be uh, effectively a high-end R&D contractor for the Defense Department to build advanced technology. And the plan always was to both uh, bid on a number of things that a lot of our mentors at DARPA had kind of in, encouraged us to get our, our ideas in front of them. And that ultimately, the goal was that, you know, within a few years, we're going to try to productize some of these. And if that works out, then that will actually be the future of the company. But even though it was founded in Silicon Valley, it's very much kind of a, I would call it anti-now Silicon Valley of you know, establish a product idea, establish a minimum viable product, raise money based on that. Instead, it was more of an old school idea of actually accept military contracting money, grow a technology base that way, productize what comes out of it. And what got us started was actually the idea of, we actually have a number of ideas, we need to see them through, and especially related to cybersecurity and large scale data analytics. And one of them, we kind of hit gold on, so far, which actually became effectively the initial version of the platform that now powers all of our products. Yeah, I'm, I'm so curious, like when you were kind of working on the project in those early days to try to get, you know, bid on those government contracts, did you imagine that you were going to make a company of the size and scale that, that Expanse is now? Absolutely not. I think uh, we had a lot of hopes and dreams, but if, if anybody says that they expected to be in the position that they currently are, like, no, I did not have expectations that would grow that far. I had hopes that it could go this far. I could see ways that it could get there. But I think like all founders, I have a healthy amount of self-delusion, but not an unhealthy amount. And I think if anybody says this is clearly going to be you know, a 150-person company from the day it's founded. Um, I think that's kind of an unhealthy version of self-delusion. Even though you should absolutely believe that you can get there, you shouldn't expect to, but you should still work very hard towards it. So I thought that uh, we would have a number of ideas 
and everybody knows that a startup is inherently risky, and we're all okay with that. Since then, it's actually turned out uh, quite well. We still have a very long ways to go, a lot to grow, a lot to build, but it's one of those that you should not kind of expect it to be that way, but you should still operate as if it's going to be that way. If you were to say, you know, at a moment in time, what is the scope of where you're at with Expanse um, and your customers? What are you solving for, for your customers right now? Overall, the biggest problem that our customers have is that none of them actually know where all of their IT on the internet is deployed, what state it's in, and what risk it poses. So the problem that Expanse is solving for our customers is both a technology problem and then ultimately a management problem. One, we've built a very large-scale platform that we operate on the internet that enables Expanse to, in near real time, find all customer IT on the internet without them needing to tell us anything. But also critically, it includes an operations platform as well that allows them to actually effectively wrangle, control, and manage all of the assets that they do have on the internet, including those that they'll discover dynamically over time, and effectively put them under normal IT management processes. And what that actually enables them to do is have a system of record for all of their IT on the internet. Whereas previously, it's managed by very disparate decentralized teams. There's no central source of truth. So that's the problem that Expanse is solving for our customers today. So is the internet fundamentally broken? What, what's the issue with the internet right now that you see? I, I like that question a lot because I think it's, um, it's one that people ask and it actually allows for a really nice multi-level answer. So kind of on a number of ways, obviously, the internet is not broken at all. It is both you know, working right now. We ourselves are talking over an internet connection. It's growing. It's a huge engine for commerce. But I think it's showing a lot of strains of different ways it both was and was not architected and also strains of how it is actually being used by organizations in practice, even if it's not supposed to be operated in that way. I think in particular, when you look at the initial designs of the internet, hands down, the first one is that uh, security was actually not a primary concern of the internet in multiple levels of initial architecture decisions. And therefore, we have a number of different patches at many different scales and in many different places for internet architecture, both in terms of uh, protocols that are used and are commonly deployed on the internet to how software itself is developed to be run in decentralized applications on the internet, to even how um, infrastructure providers uh, do and do not provide various aspects of security on the internet. So I think that that's one side, but there's, there's another side that I think is actually getting worse. And this is actually how, in principle, organizations as a whole are actually using IT on the internet. And a lot of this is actually repeating similar problems of more or less a business imperative to at the highest level digitally transform is meaning that most security guidelines for how businesses should actually digitally transform themselves and be on the internet are effectively getting ignored or only paid lip service to as they're throwing huge amounts of IT online with actually no near-term concern for a lot of the downstream consequences that that will have. And then also going forward, the Internet of Things and the vendors and manufacturers responsible for them that are actually creating holistic internet insecurity 
by effectively deploying devices on the internet with no security or very little security baked in. Yeah. So yeah, kind of expand on that because I think um, that's something that, you know, we've touched on a little bit in on the show in the past, but never really dove in on like, yeah. is it, is it kind of the responsibility of those folks to build security in? Like, I mean, to, it comes to mind back, I don't know, 20 years ago, nothing was, you know, HTTPS and now, you know, every single you know organization that we do business with or have any sort of, uh, you know, our banks and all those sort of stuff obviously have those types of security settings. So like, what is, where does the responsibility lie? Sure. So I'll kind of frame, frame this too. Is and one is that for most ordinary people, all of this seems both very abstract and can be sometimes confusing because I, I think from the perspective of most users of the internet, the internet really is kind of what they experience on their mobile phone and in their browsers. And there it appears to be really going awesome. Like we have apps that are beautiful, very responsive, can push all sorts of content. I think the challenge for a lot of people is that that's only kind of half of the internet. There's the entire other half that is the part that services and supports all of those applications. And that's basically the infrastructure of the internet, both for routing and a variety of other networking tasks, and then also the servers that increasingly serve up the content that are then accessed by our primary consumer devices. And I think what we've seen on that side is that organizations are starting to understand that they need to invest at least in kind of core areas of security, but they tend to be very both point focused on kind of thinking that they can only say, okay, we're going to have a small core of items. Let's secure that. And, you know, everything else is going to be effectively a lower priority. We'll get to it at some point, as opposed to saying we need to holistically be secure by default everywhere. What we're actually seeing is that unless you're more or less secure by default everywhere or have programs to aggressively go that way, it's actually really hard to truly secure only part of an enterprise network simply because networks are so interdependent and interconnected today. I think similarly on the vendor side, and this is actually a very hard problem that I don't see an easy answer to. It's both very hard to judge security between different vendors and also expensive for them to provide, which means that in many cases, you're left with a lemon market of vendors that do choose to invest in security are going to be not investing as much in features unless their buyers are very sophisticated about it. And therefore, it effectively becomes a race to the bottom on security to deploy either a software or an embedded device like an Internet of Things device as fast as possible, which actually contributes to an overall problem of Internet security because then every network device becomes interrelated and every single insecure network device, especially on the Internet or a local network, becomes another place that an attacker can pivot off of or linger. So do you think that the way in which you know companies kind of like secure in those areas is like, you know, obviously you kind of have this like multi-vendor approach for a lot of folks now. Do you think that like the number of vendors go up in, you know, 10 years from now, you know, is it just going to be a rise and rise of security vendors? Because like, obviously that, that type of cost isn't sustainable. Yeah. I mean, uh, this might sound contrarian, but I think we're actually going to face um, a wave of consolidation. So one of my primary job responsibilities is to talk to our customers and uh, hands down, um, our all of our customers, which are very, very large enterprises and government agencies, 
suffer really from two problems universally. I don't care if you're, you know, a bank. I don't care if you're the U.S. Army. It is both. Uh, everybody has a very hard time uh, both recruiting and retaining top talent. And also, everybody has to use a dizzying array of dozens or even hundreds of different vendors. The solutions and products they buy from vendors themselves are never even either turned on, or if they are turned on, they're not actually effectively operationalized to deliver the promised value of the solution in the first place. And even though I see a lot of trends in cybersecurity getting much worse for companies overall and having it be much harder, um, I see actually a consolidation coming of every large enterprise does not want to actually be effectively in the multi-dozen to multi-hundred vendor relationship management business. They want to be in the security solution business. And as a result, I think you're going to see actually a large collapse of the number of vendors, specifically because a point vendor that solves a point solution does not actually solve a problem for a customer at the end of the day based on the complexity of the environments that they operate. Switching gears, just like coming out of DARPA, you know, back when you did, how did you, how did you get involved in, uh, with DARPA, you know, from the beginning? And for those of our listeners who don't know, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, a great acronym, uh, as someone who spent a lot of time in the military, always <laughs> loved our good acronyms. Um, but uh, DARPA is one of the good ones. Obviously, tons and tons of projects have spun out of DARPA. Um, that have done some amazing stuff. So why were you excited to go there to begin with? Sure. So I, along with a few other people, um, including some people that became my co-founders, we were tapped by the director of DARPA at the time, an amazing woman named Regina Dugan, to effectively all drop out of grad school temporarily and effectively join a big data analytics effort related to the war in Afghanistan. Um, so what attracted me was both the ability to have impact um, and be trusted and also actually help out in at least some small way in the national level mission. And I actually, as did some of the other founders of KDM actually, slash Expanse, actually deployed to Afghanistan. And it was extremely impactful to actually have recommendations of kind of algorithms and data that I had uh, come up with, um, be briefed to the two-star and four-star generals in charge of the entire war effort and actually have theater-wide policy changed based on recommendations. So to me, what actually got me there in the first place was uh, a friend of a friend who couch surfed on my couch one night at Stanford when we were both in master's programs. Uh, he was in statistics. I was in electrical engineering. And then he said, hey, there's something cool going on in DC. You should check it out. And I did. And it was supposed to just be initially a summer internship for me. And then nine months later, I'm lead data scientist for all of DARPA in Kabul after stopping on my PhD program for a year and a half. So life took a very kind of fun and rewarding and unexpected turn with that. But ultimately, what was motivating was both the, the people, the idea, and also the fact that I could have, you know, hopefully at least some positive impact uh, on a war that at that time um, had been going on for over a decade. And then switching that, you know, kind of into creating a, a company, obviously, and, and a product that serves customers, you know, like CVS, PayPal folks like that in the U.S. government, is there like a difference of approach that you have to, you know, your customers that are, that are the U.S. government and, and public companies and private companies? I think that the, the approach we have for them um, it depends a bit on sector, but effectively all of them actually have very similar sets of problems, um, at least that we help with 
with regards to IT and security. So all large companies are very, very big. They're very decentralized in terms of how their operations work. And fundamentally, all of them have the same problem of nobody actually knows where all of their assets are within the organization. And it's a very challenging problem for them to solve internally without expanse. So in particular, and it, it can seem kind of non-obvious if you've not worked inside some of these, but at the end of the day, most business processes are actually quite common across different organizations, even though they might do different things or make different products. But the way we put it is, you know, there's a back office HR function that absolutely needs IT, be it the Navy or a place like American Express. There are all sorts of other business processes that all use the same system. So all of our customers buy computers from Dell and HP. They will all buy routers from places like Cisco. And as a result, when you actually look at them from an IT deployment perspective, there are actually quite a lot of similarities to how they operate, even though they're in vastly different industries. But the largest commonalities that they have are that they are just very large and very decentralized and all undergoing digital transformation. And we're able to help them actually manage all of their assets really as a partner. And I think that's the other thing that kind of differs between what you do with smaller companies as a vendor and larger companies, which uh, since we exclusively serve large companies, critically, our customers view us as a critical business partner because ultimately we help them drive outcomes and do new things that they could not do without us, as opposed to just being a data vendor where we sell them software or a license to software. We're actually viewed as a partner by them, which is a very important lesson that uh, both I've learned and the company has learned as we've grown and expanded. You know, because you're working with such big companies and you're, you know, sitting down with CIOs and CTOs and CISOs, you know, all the time, what are some of the things that they're coming to you with that they can't figure out or reason or capacities that they need to, to add to uh, their organization? Sure, absolutely. So first and foremost is asset management is very, very challenging for an organization and actually building a system of record is very hard because it requires both a technology investment um, as well as investments in people and processes to keep it updated. So hands down, they're coming to us to help with that problem for all of the assets on the internet that are just absolutely astoundingly large for these organizations that can actually have you know tens or even hundreds of thousands of internet connected systems, uh, many of which they don't even know about. What they're also looking for us to do is actually help them improve really the rest of their investments. And specifically, this actually goes to our primary job is to actually get all of the data that we see into the other enterprise systems and other enterprise processes that our customers have so that rather than just being a point solution, we're actually making other parts and other components of their business um, that much more responsive and uh, that much more valuable. So as an example, um, our data can feed into a variety of systems such as uh, configuration management database systems or CMDBs. That means that we're not actually replacing a CMDB, but we are making their CMDB that much more responsive so that every day, it'll be updated with a complete inventory of assets. And therefore, if any process goes over that system, it will actually be up to date every single day. So the real value we provide our customers is 
the data that's there, but also the capabilities it allows them to provide across their entire organization where it's no longer dependent on deploying a whole bunch of things. It's no longer dependent on um, a very large number of people in their organization all needing to kind of execute to perfection. It's actually making their entire organization much more agile as a result of using our software and technology and then having it hook into really lots of different areas for where work is done. What are some of the challenges that you have kind of faced over the past few years in getting folks to adopt like why this is important? Or is it something that people just conceptually know and they are kind of looking for a solution? It very much is not. So uh, the category for what we do still does not really exist. So as a result, um, it's actually fighting for both uh, why you should do anything on this problem. And then also if you should, why should you buy Expanse as the market leader? so in, in particular, this is where we've noticed um, effectively, I'd, I'd say like a pretty large shift within the last few years. So when we started selling three and a half years ago, there was a real question that was actually foundational going into pitches, but also just meeting with customers about why should I do anything? Some of this was, I don't believe there's a problem. Other objections were, I think that this is a problem, but uh, I have literally a list of 503 things I need to do right now. This might be number 492 in some sense. And I think what's changed a lot is that one, um, everyone's realized that this is actually a much bigger problem than anyone thought, and it's much more pervasive. I can literally count on one hand the number of organizations who are not expanse customers that we see actually having this problem solved. It's a very small number that can do it, and you need to really operate at absolutely massive scale and be able to afford top talent in order to do so. And on top of that, also, we've seen that there are really bad side effects from you not having an up-to-date inventory system. So uh, some of the most striking or have actually been um, in ransomware-style attacks, but um, in particular, the WannaCry uh, ransomware, which was a worldwide internet attack that the U.S. government has, in unclassified ways, widely attributed to North Korea really changed a lot of people's perspectives because what WannaCry uh, was able to do was basically look for internet-connected systems of a certain kind of configuration of effectively unpatched Microsoft Windows systems. And then what it would do is it would both infect those systems on the public internet, install itself on there, and then also replicate onto the internal networks of companies as well. So it was a worm that would both infect machines on the internet and then recursively burrow into private intranets. And then what happened was it would effectively encrypt the hard drives of all of those computers, making them effectively unreadable and unusable to organizations. And in less than 24 hours, this spread worldwide and caused over $10 billion worth of damage. And then also had many follow-on attacks that uh, reused parts of this code um, with other attacks, including the not patch attacks. But what this actually showed is that a lot of different organizations were all affected. They had billion plus dollar losses. You actually had operations cease at companies for weeks at a time. And all of it was related to very kind of mundane, low level IT configuration hygiene issues. And with that, all of a sudden, I think people really started to realize this problem is much, much bigger than we think and has effectively been a blind spot. 
And it's been a blind spot for a number of reasons. The biggest one in, in our view is assembling the data to show how large a delta exists between where your systems actually exist and where your current systems are tracking. That itself was impossible for organizations to solve. And therefore, they could never internally quantify how large the problem was. And therefore, they could never internally come up with any justification for how a substantial amount of resources should be allocated to solve this problem. Do you find that when you're, when you're talking to an organization that you have, you know, the CIO, the CISO, the CTO, like how many different, like, do you have the CMO in there? How many different folks are touching security and, and technology and kind of that conversation? I think in practice, um, it usually is a relatively small number of roles. So you mentioned CIO, CISO, CTO. In effect, what will happen is, uh, although kind of security is supposed to be everyone's responsibility, it actually does fall on a cognizant official. And the trick is that even though systems that may be owned by some executive, let's say marketing systems, they're ostensibly owned by the CMO they actually have effectively dual responsibilities and dual reporting into, say, the CISO for security. What we find is that uh, we will actually go on the technology side specifically because even though certain departments may be responsible for more problems, all of our, for all, all of our commercial customers, um, hands down, the most common complaint is the marketing team. And I love our marketing team too, so this isn't meant against the marketing team. I'm just reporting what our customers tell me, but it's also borne out in our data and for our government customers, it is uh, always uh, third-party contractors doing things on their behalf that lead to a lot of assets that are unaccounted for or not run through uh, central IT and IT security processes. The reason that we actually go to the CIO and the CISO of organizations is it's really an all-of-organization problem in that um, even if you could, in principle, secure, say, all marketing devices the real problem is actually as a company, you need a comprehensive program across all of your divisions. Otherwise, if you only solve it in piecemeal ways, the overall problem and the overall management issue still remains of you have assets that are unaccounted for, and therefore you actually don't know how to defend that which you do not know of. So ultimately, it is actually an all of company sale, and that's why it's CIO and CISO. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, and that's kind of you know, there's so many different folks within an organization that are buying technology now. That's why I was so curious, like how many different stakeholders, you know, are you looking at that are part of this? Yeah, well, and ultimately, the, the places our technology will be used is by a large number of people. But ultimately, it is how do you actually have an IT and security and governance framework for anything that shows up on the internet? And kind of an example of this is, is really the problems that our customers face are that they're no longer a central gatekeeper of all IT purchasing, yet at the same time, they are in some ways, in some very, very real ways, still effectively accountable for all the IT and IT incidents that the organization uses, even if it was not approved by them. So as, as an example, Nearly all of our customers are actually hybrid cloud and multi-cloud customers. They all still have some data centers. They're in multiple clouds, but they might only be tracking part of where their cloud deployments are because anyone in their organization with a purchasing card can effectively become an IT systems administrator if they want to be just by signing up with Amazon. And that's really, again, the problems that everyone faces are 
massive decentralized action that can move very fast to accomplish quite a bit, but without the ability to actually rein in and holistically manage all of the IT that's going on within their organization, even if it was not centrally approved by them or procured by them. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, we were talking to a CIO uh, recently and they're saying how anytime you want to launch an initiative, don't use the term governance because it's uh, like, if you're like, hey, let's have a governance meeting, nobody will show up and everybody will feel kind of threatened. But the, the converse of that is you do need to have some level of, of governance and understanding. Have you found that to be the case? Absolutely, yes. And I think the key that we've found is that ultimately, this all ties to governance, but effectively, people need an operational solution. So what is still the standard in a lot of organizations, including very, very large ones, some of our customers, is for effectively lines of business to effectively kind of self-certify and verify that they comply with IT regulations. And there are things like periodic point-in-time audits, a number of other like good practices to have, but it's actually not enough and it's not convergent with how modern IT operations actually are being run at organizations, even if in some of the ways they're actually being run are technically out of policy or non-compliant. So it absolutely is a governance question and we absolutely assist with that. But you also need to have an operational solution to, again, kind of solving the actual problems of customers. It's not enough to say, we need a governance strategy. It's like, cool, we need an operational component to that strategy that actually has rapid enforcement and uh, rapid discovery of violations of that policy. We recently sat down with retired Army uh, Major General John Davis, who's, uh, who's at Palo Alto Networks, and he was telling us the, the unclassed stories of uh, Operation Buckshot Yankee, which was pretty fun. It, it really kind of put us you know, and for our listeners who haven't checked that out, I highly recommend you go do it because it was a great episode with John Davis talking about security and kind of how this security problem kind of like fell into his lap when he was in the army. And it kind of made me think about the kind of state of the CIO a little bit where this kind of potential problem could be kind of waiting for you and then fall in your lap. I think that's a very you know, worrisome thing. And some folks don't have CISO in, in their title or in maybe they report to them, maybe they don't. But I think everybody kind of is a stakeholder no matter what. What have you seen in terms of like looking for it in the future to prevent those type of like, you know, hey, this thing fell out of the sky and into my lap sort of scenarios? Absolutely. So um, I think kind of hands down, it's the fact that uh, we don't kind of talk about this enough, but actually uh, IT is an extraordinarily manual profession with huge numbers of people involved. Unless you're kind of an insider, I don't think that uh, can be impressed enough because kind of all of the marketing language from vendors is, you know, some sort of tag cloud amalgam of automated big data, deep learning, AI, ML automation that will solve everything. And in almost all cases, it is basically a fiction compared to the marketing claims of these things of of these vendors. In fact, it involves large numbers of people. So I think Buckshot Yankee is a great example of where, uh, based on my unclassified understanding, there was some service member or contractor plugged in a USB drive that had been infected with the agent.bits malware into a computer that was uh, classified. And it spread 
among our systems that way. And the action itself in the after action was, of course, out of policy. You know, there are all sorts of regulations governing, you know, you shall not put, you know, a thumb drive that's not approved into um, a Department of Defense information system. And you had some individuals saying, you know, look, I know it's out of policy, but I'm in a deployed environment, working really hard. And I know it's out of policy, but I also like really need to move files or do something. And I'm going to do this this one time, and it probably won't be that bad an idea. And we'd actually see the, see the same things for things like what created the uh, WannaCry vulnerabilities. IT and security administrators saying, I know it's out of policy to, in this case, have a Microsoft file sharing service, specifically SMB, out on the internet. But, you know, we're, we have so much to do, we'll fix it some other time. In all cases, there actually are very human errors that are on pretty much IT basics. And the real problem is that we do not have a pervasive and efficient way to actually ensure that even baseline policies are being followed all the time. Instead, there's actually a whole bunch of effectively trying to trust, but not quite trusting the people and definitely not verifying anything. So I think going forward, what we actually need and demand in order to both kind of scale these systems and ensure security is systems that effectively can certify technically that they actually are meeting various performance criteria. And right now, despite a lot of marketing claims, um, holistically across enterprises, that is just not being done. But I think overall, we're, we're, we're going to see a very large move towards systems that, um, you know, yes, are effectively zero trust, but also effectively have principles that we've seen work in some contexts that are called comply to connect, where you effectively have to assert that technically things are being followed. And if they are not, you're not allowed effectively kind of, you know, a waiver that says, well, we know this is being followed most of the time, but here are some exceptions and we're going to call it secure. Um, that's not going to fly in the future because you're going to need everything to effectively be verified upfront rather than um, kind of allowing both humans and systems to slide and not actually have technical verification on what they're claiming to do. As CTO, how do you kind of focus your day, focus your team? Like, are you working on product most of the time? Are you working with, you know, on internal employee stuff? Like what's your kind of, uh, how do you spread that stuff out? Sure, absolutely. So I think the way that I described it is uh, my job as CTO really changes about every six to nine months. So right now, and you know, if you ask me in a year, it will change a lot. But right now I have, I would call it three main responsibilities. One, effectively uh, new product prototypes and the uh, data science team that supports those uh, reports into me. So there are new product prototypes that we do. That's probably about a third of my time overall in those areas is developing new technology, working with the team to do that. Probably a between a third and half my time these days, close to half is actually spent with our customers um, and also with prospects, both uh, really listening to them, learning about their problems and having that feedback. And then uh, the rest of my time is actually spent working deeply with are primarily engineering um, and product teams and also with our marketing team on what is actually our long-term technical strategy? How does that interface and play with our other near-term roadmaps? And really, what do we need to be building, not necessarily over the next six months, but really over the next 12 months, 18 months, 24 months? 
So what's next for Expanse? What do those next 18 to 24 months look like? Ooh, for us, well, um, obviously we want to have kind of a few surprises in store, but I think for us, the real key is becoming the system of record that our customers use to manage all of their internet assets. We find more assets than any of our customers or any other vendor does. And a lot of our focus going forward is really on building the platform that they can use to manage them and then have all that data feed all of the rest of their enterprise systems so that all of the investment they've made in other tools, people, and processes um, are made that much better by our software and our data feeding into them specifically because if you're one of our customers and let's say that you currently are only tracking, say, 60% of your assets, you could have tens of millions of dollars, in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars of investment and spend in the rest of your tools And they're actually not solving 40% of your problems. So with Expanse, we really can get you to 100% and allow you to actually manage and control everything that you own. All right, let's get into lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. Just like the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience, you can go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more about the amazing Customer 360 platform. Go do it. Highly recommend it. We love Salesforce. You will too. Lightning round questions. Matt, are you ready? Right. Hit me. What is your favorite thing to cook or eat? So eat, I would say um, I'm a huge fan of sushi. Always have been. Uh, always will be. Ever since really the age of four, there was a great sushi restaurant we went to that was local in Massachusetts in a hibachi grill. And to cook, I'd say really kind of a classic Italian cookbook, uh, Marcella Hazen, a lot of really great recipes. Uh, One of my favorite things to cook is actually um, a recipe from her book. It's roast lamb with a little bit of Dijon mustard, soy sauce, olive oil, and rosemary emulsified. And then you cook them for about 20 minutes on the side. Absolutely delicious. They fall off the bone. Um, Been experimenting with sous vide them as well recently. What do you do for fun? So I think in particular, um, I like to read a lot. And uh, this is primarily actually certain nonfiction. And then I also really like to learn about the adjacent areas of kind of both tech and applied math that I never really got a chance to. So even though I did a PhD, I always like to keep learning. So right now, um, I realized kind of have a gap in my knowledge, especially around really deep end-to-end understanding of how wireless communications work. So then starting on that, got a software-defined radio a little while ago, have done kind of the, all the basic early projects of setting up FM radio, um, would actually love to at some point develop my own synthetic aperture radar, which I think would just be a very cool application. It definitely takes a backseat to uh, everything I'm doing at Expanse, but it's a fun side project to keep going to see of what I can do and to keep learning different ways. And uh, who knows, there could actually be very interesting applications that affect uh, what we do at Expanse someday that I haven't thought of yet. What book, podcast, show, movie are you excited about watching right now? I will say I actually am a really big fan of the show, The Expanse, although that's not why we named our company that way. So I was going to ask. Very excited to see. <laughs> I, uh, I think, uh, I think it's, it's great. Um, so I'm very much excited about the next season 
coming up, uh, left out a good cliffhanger and uh, really like the character development. In terms of podcasts, are you a belter? Uh, <laughs> oh, a belt. Oh, a be- am I a belter? Uh, which group are you? <laughs> no, I think that I would. Uh, I'm kind of most naturally aligned with. I would say a kind of more engineering focused, less kind of you know militaristic version of the Mars Society. There, where I really like that there's a unifying principle of the overall society. The fact that it also is kind of a bit military dictatorish is somewhat a turnoff for me, but but I like the unification of principles and actually the overall mission of kind of terraforming a country and being worthy of a project that's bigger than yourself really appeals to me. But I think at the same time, uh, making sure that there's also good personal autonomy would be um, required. And then in terms of books, um, I'm actually excited. I, I have a recent one that is looking at effectively the historical development of mathematics and really looking at the the societal context in which things were developed, which I think is fascinating. It's it's actually a book on math, so it's not kind of a sociological book or anything like that, but it's actually looking at a lot of the factors that could have gone in and helped contribute to people understanding and really expressing ideas in certain ways at certain times as opposed to others. So um, I'm excited to read that as well, because I think that we are often taught mathematics in particular in ways that divorce them from both the practical realities that people were working on at the time and also um, other deeper reasons that kind of influenced uh, subtle parts of the mathematics in some ways, not necessarily the underlying ideas, but at least how they are commonly expressed and you can actually get a lot of insight and improve your thinking by understanding the context in which they were made. What was, what deadline have you blown through in your life that you were really proud that you, you didn't meet the deadline? I think the proudest one is actually, uh, I'm both proud that I blew through it, but then ultimately met it. It was actually the initial self-imposed deadline to finish my PhD thesis effectively by kind of the end of 2012. And it was absolutely the right call because we'd actually started Expanse slash Cadium at the time in May of 2012. And it was absolutely competing for attention. And I gave myself a self-imposed deadline to finish it by then. And I didn't. I was working on um, a number of our early proposals that really jump-started the company. Obviously, in hindsight, definitely the right decision to do. But was a bit nerve wracking because I was also wondering if I was going to finish or not and if that mattered. And in in retrospect, I did finish. Uh, It actually took my mom, who I love saying, all I want for Christmas is for you to finish your PhD. (laughs) And as soon as she she said that, um, one, she knows me really, really well and knew that I could not, like, I have to finish it at that point. There's nothing else I can do. But I am happy I finished. I don't think it would have been necessary. but I like that there was a lot of pressure from a lot of people to not finish. And I would have always wondered, uh, you know, can I actually tie a bow on it? I actually finished my thesis. Um, I'm proud of what I did. And it was actually kind of a nice coda of a point in my life that I learned a huge amount, grew a huge amount, had fantastic mentorship and ideas. And a lot of that mindset that I developed in that program and just kind of even the discipline of finally finishing a thesis while working on a lot of other, other things and starting a company has actually been very, very helpful, especially today when a lot of my job really requires me to do 
large numbers of things, many of which are actually long-term and strategic and absolutely compete with nearer-term deliverables and also just kind of of day-to-day operational matters. Final question. What is your best advice for a first-time CTO? I think the largest one is that in contrast to pretty much every other position, your job and what you work on will absolutely change. And you should try to be very, very intentional as you realize that both things are working or not working. And then also whether or not you want to change to try to address the problem or whether or not you realize that actually it is something that you are not going to be the best at anymore. And you actually need to hire someone else who will be better than you. So I think in in particular for most first-time CTOs, there's going to be a very natural progression where you're kind of initially setting the technical vision, helping build um, a lot of the initial products. And then very quickly, you're going to be thrust into a position where you're effectively the VP of engineering and you're going to try to manage you know, a growing technical team as you're doing everything else. And the biggest question that I have to people is you don't need to be everything. And in particular, you should actually think about what you want to do and how you're going to be bringing on an overall technical team. And it's not your job to run everything. It's your job to be the voice of technology in the organization that can take many different pathways. Um, for myself as a first time CEO knew that, you know, if I'm going to be managing very large numbers of people, that's actually going to a bit sap my energy because I need some amount of ability to both create and time to think. And that if literally 90 plus percent of all of my time is going to be on management issues, one, I'm probably not going to be the best person for that. Two, at the time, especially the first time doing it, much less experience than I am now. And three, you can both find support and find people better than you. I think that's the main trick of you don't need to do everything. You need to find people that make the overall organization better. And the very first uh, aspect that every CTO is going to face is effectively, are you the people manager for everybody? And do you actually want to be that? Or do you actually want to have you know, a partner that usually is going to be an external VP of Eng that you can bring in to really help grow and scale the organization? And then you'll find your unique value adds in other parts and in other ways of the organization. I think being able to ask that question early and uh, often and not have it seem like a status of diminution because it will seem like certain responsibilities are going to be taken away from you when in fact you're actually helping the org grow and are actually being both a good founder and a good executive. I think that lesson will repeat itself over time. And that's the best le- advice I can give to first-time CTOs is, don't be afraid of lots of change in your role because it will happen. You should actually proactively seek it out and then ask yourself what you are the best in the organization at and what are you only okay at or what saps your energy and find other people that do those activities way better than you because otherwise you yourself are going to become increasingly ineffective. Awesome. That's all we got. That's it. Thanks for coming on the show, Matt. We really appreciate it. Any, uh, any final thoughts, any things to plug? No, I just want to say thanks for the opportunity to come on. A really exciting discussion. And thank you so much. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. 
IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.